Hello, hello. This is Chris. Welcome to the End Evil Podcast. Evil is the destruction of freedom. Glad to see you folks. Welcome back to another week of the End Evil Podcast. This week I'm finishing up a conversation I've been having for the last two weeks with my good friend Dom. I gathered some information and slides in the journey of learning about what Dom called the conspiracy of all conspiracies. I thought it was a great discussion. I have been thinking back to myself. How did I originally become such a strange conspiracy theorist? What got me started on this journey of asking too many questions and digging deeper and wanting to know, wanting to get to the bottom of things? And one of the things that I originally got very curious about in my journey as a truth seeker was the origins of humankind, the origins of humans. Where did we come from? Why are we here? So if you want to check out my website and evil.life, you will see that um, in the last two weeks, we have some information loaded up about, about that. And what I've done this week for you is put together some of the slides of, as I got curious this week and, and researched a little bit, I saved some of the screenshots and the websites I went to of, of some of the things that really stuck out in the books I've listened to and podcasts I've heard in the last few years regarding some of the megalithic structures and some of the artifacts that exist on this earth that defy the typical history that we grew up on and that we were educated on in schools. And so I'm going to share with you some of that interesting and fun and curious things I've come across so you can share them with other people and so you can wonder about them yourself. Let me see if I can go ahead and bring up a slide or two here to share with you. <clears throat> Learning the new controls on my new toy. I got to, before I get into the um, slides this week, I always like to thank What on Earth is Happening, one of my big inspirations for doing podcasting in the first place. Uh, Mark Passio's uh, work on What on Earth is Happening really is a big part of the journey for me, but I didn't discover that until much later on. So what I'm getting into now is some of the things I wondered out before, I wondered about before I discovered What on Earth is Happening. But um, in a way, what I'm curious about now is why on earth is it happening? Why are we in the situation we're in? And I think that's all why um, we've got together on the One Great Work Network. And a lot of people have banded together and sharing information, trying to help other folks see some of the things that we see. And if you're here now, you're obviously one of these people that is good at asking questions and searching for the answers. So thank you for coming. This is my website, a little screenshot of my website and evil.life. The newest episode is up called The Renaissance of Reason. That was a great episode. My good friend, Will Keller. And you can check that out on Rumble, too. I just got that one loaded up on Rumble. I'm going to check out that social media platform. wanted to show you that on the sidebar there, you can find the End Evil video series. And that was like my original videos I made to kind of describe from beginning to end, my whole interpretation of what's going on around us and why we're in the situation we're in. You could check out my donate page. I got some cool and evil shirts and, and um, I'm always happy to get a little donations. I've got a couple recently and got myself a new microphone. That was pretty awesome because my old one sounded terrible. So if the sound's a little better, thank you to donators for helping me get a new microphone. This is a little picture here of the One Great Work Network. There's always something cool going on there. So I always recommend popping in whenever you're scrolling around on the internet and see what's new on the One Great Work Network. There's just constantly new stuff being uploaded and new presenters are showing up. They've been bringing in um, some great new speakers. And uh, it's just amazing how much great material is on this website. So I highly recommend to check out OneGreatWorkNetwork.com if you haven't. It's a great 
It's a great website. I'm glad to be part of it. I got my link here to Autonomy on the sidebar of andevil.life. Autonomy is also a really neat program that I would recommend checking out. Um, it's a great way to work on practicing your freelancing skills and learning to become a more autonomous individual in this complicated world we live in. So you can find the link for autonomy right here on the sidebar of andevil.life, if you see the blue square there. All right. So that's my little advertisements for the day. So here's a picture of a pyramid. Actually, this has a pyramid inside a pyramid, is what the website I found it on described. But all over the earth, we see amazing structures. And we, the more we look into every ancient culture on the planet, it seems that there are mysteries. It seems that there are strange alignments with planets and the sun and complex architecture that is hard to describe how people could have possibly made in the time that they were said to be built according to the timeline we would have formally conceived to be true. These are a couple of the books uh, that I've been listening, re-listening to uh, recently. The Technology of the Gods by David Hatcher Childress and The Twelfth Planet by Zachariah Sitchin. These are books that I'd previously looked into. And then recently, as I started having this conversation with Dom about what he came up with, the title, The Conspiracy of All Conspiracies, it got me re-listening to these couple of books. And there's so much great information in these two books. I just wanted to recommend them to you folks. If anything I talk about in this episode interests you, you could probably find out quite a bit more in one of these two uh, books. Why is it good to ask questions and wonder? Why is it good to think about these things? Are they really important? There's some of the questions that were coming into my mind as I was putting together these slides for this episode. I asked myself, I really want to be talking about things on End Evil podcasts that are pertinent to our life. And in some ways, when you look at as wild and interesting as these structures are, I can see where some point of view might say, well, how is this really pertinent or important to my life? Well, I think it's important for one, just for the sake of being curious and asking questions. In that state of mind, when we are curious and we're asking questions, our, our, our brain's in a better place. And when we're um, curious and learning new things, it's kind of like that right brain curiosity, and it allows us to operate on a more upbeat level. And so for one, it's just kind of fun, right? And so for me, that's how it started out when I looked into some of the anomalies in ancient history. But as you dig in more, you start to find these strange parallels to research in other, in other schools and other spheres of research. And these pictures here are a good example of what I'm talking about. We look at the complex cuttings in these stones and, you know, walk around your own town or city and you don't see anything at all like what you see in these stones. I was um, I live in Northern California in the United States, and the United States is known for not having nearly the architecture that you find in some other countries. I was lucky enough to travel to see London and France, and there you do see some pretty fantastic stonework everywhere you look. In fact, it's pretty mind-blowing for someone like me to go to a place like that. However, these, these some of these ancient structures were said to have built been built so far back in history, it really boggles the mind of how these things were done. And especially when you look, for instance, in the little picture here that where they have the square in the cut in the rock where it's at a 90 degree angle, um, cut out perfectly smooth, as if it were done with some sort of laser technology. How could people of ancient times possibly have had the tools and technology to, to pull off these type of complicated carvings. Now, it's very possible that they had some 
really good masons with some really good chisels and they worked for a really long time and there were a lot of them but what you find when you read the books like i just described the technology of the gods is a good example you uh some other researchers do a really good job of explaining why these things are totally um defy what we would have what what we would have thought was possible. So, um, you know, luckily, unluckily, I am not in terms of being uh, technically minded. I don't know exactly um, what the details are on all these on all these structures and artifacts are. But what I do know is that I can put things together and I can compare things and I can see <clears throat> that there's really not much like built like like these ancient structures are in modern times. And for one, that just kind of makes me wonder about our level of what we see as being important and worthwhile with our time. And it really makes you wonder what were they thinking about in these times to put so much time and energy into leaving something that would last for so long, where the things that we build in modern times don't last very long. They're built to be broken apart and just re and just rebuilt again whereas we have these stone structures that were built thousands and thousands of years ago still standing and still asking the questions that they were asking so many years ago so a lot of research has gone into looking at some of these various artifacts and places in the world and what's interesting what i've come across in my research is that you find um a really completely different story told when you, for instance, start listening to podcasts or, or reading books um, as far as what you'd heard before that. So what I discovered is, for one, that there are a lot more sites and places, and for two, that they are all over the world in all different places. And for three, there's a lot of commonalities between the different megalithic structures, for instance. And one of the common things we see in some of these huge structures built are enormous pieces of stone that really no one can quite describe how these pieces of stone were moved. And in some cases, they're able to identify where the stone came from many miles away. And in other cases, they don't even know where the stones came from. However, they're so large and weigh so many tons that we don't even know how people could have possibly moved them. And then we have structures like this. This was, uh, I believe, in China, where there's structures that have been found underwater. And originally, you know, skeptics want to say that's impossible that that was built by man. But of course, when you look closely, you can see the sharp edges and corners, and it's obviously man-made. This is in uh, called the Yonagun, the Yonaguni Monument in Japan, and it was found underwater off the coast of the Yoguni Island in 1987. So it has flat parallel edges, right angles, sharp edges, pillars, and columns. So obviously man-made, but deep underwater. Interesting thing about that is some of the original stories of Atlantis, as told by Plato. And then um, for many years, people searched the globe and set out on huge adventures to find Ad Atlantis and argued about where Atlantis might be. And, and sort of the unanswered question, it's still unsolved mystery. But we have things like this, which make you wonder if there is some truth to the story of some ancient city that is now deep underwater or that was an island that sunk as the story went. So um, are they just myths, these stories of Atlantis, or is there some reality to them? Well, what I found curious when I'm thinking about this is that these questions and unanswered puzzles about history were sort of brushed by when I was in school. I remember in the years of school, like this type of thing, uh, we didn't really spend much time on. And if it came up, it was just a curiosity. In my mind, when we come across these huge questions that are 
like like um an elephant in the room they beg to be answered and researched and it makes me really curious why people haven't spent in mainstream more time and energy trying to solve these questions because there is an importance here and that's where i'm going to try to do throughout this episode is tie it back in on why this is important here's some pictures from easter island and one of the most remote places on earth and yet one of the most world famous mysteries the giant stone statues called the moai i don't know if i'm saying that correctly a lot of people thought the statues were merely heads but excavation has shown almost all of them have bodies and there's also a form of hieroglyphic writing on some of the statues and um, no one's been able to translate them according to this article that i found so you know not having not having the scientific equipment to go out there and measure how tall these things i can tell you now that they're enormous and it makes you wonder just common sense why the heck would someone take all that time and energy to build something like that you know and um we got we got major problems we deal with in modern times just on survival right trying to get you know everybody trying to get food everybody trying to get shelter just trying to keep peace between people seems impossible there's always wars going on and so in ancient times they had this luxury of time where apparently everything was getting along so well or or someone's rule was so absolute that they could organize in such a fantastic way to spend what would probably take generations to build and move enormous stones and for what reason for what purpose what was produced what what did they gain by creating these things well what they did do what we can tell for sure is that they left this giant question mark in history they left something that we can still see today many many years later and i think that alone is is the part of the mystery that that leads to why it's important why would why would these ancient peoples have taken so much time to leave something for us to see? Is that why they were doing it? Well, that might be part of it. Um, so Stonehenge, one of the most commonly seen um, megalithic sites. I found a little article about a team that came through in 2018 and did some drilling in one of the Stonehenge's sarsens. And um, the research were apparently granted permission to do this destruction um, and drill into the rock. And by doing this work, they were able to find these 22 trace elements in the core and then find these 20 different sites dotting Southern England. And the chemical signature of the core exactly matched some of the sites and so they finally determined that these rocks came from the west woods a six square kilometer area the most intriguing implication of the finding is that all the stones were likely moved during the monument's second phase of construction and they say that would have been around 2500 bc what it really brings home for me is the Herculean effort that went into making this structure in a reasonably short time window. So that's a quote from one of the um, Nash is the name of the, <clears throat> the lead author, David Nash. How Neolithic people managed to transport the massive stones, which have an average weight of 20 metric tons, remains unknown. So um, I thought it was going to tell me in that article exactly how far away that was. But the point being, they did some work, they figured out where the stones likely came from, and they still really can't explain how the heck they got them from point A to point B. So it's just another example of a huge question mark. Um, there are so many interesting things if you wanna do some more research and looking into Stonehenge. It's not just that there are huge stones and that they're piled in the way they are, it's that there's these alignments that have to do with the solar system, the planets, the equinox. And that is very interesting. So whoever built these obviously had some pretty deep knowledge of astronomy and was able to 
organize this Herculean effort in such a way that the rocks line up perfectly with astronom astronomical um, design, which is mind-blowing, not just because that was done on this structure, but because that was done on most of these megalithic structures that we see on the planet. <clears throat> these particular, I always get confused which um, one is which, but this particular site is one of the one that just really blows my mind with those H looking designs and how exactly they were carved out. And there's some pictures I've seen in the past I wasn't able to find for this episode that show um, an area of this, I believe it's this same site, where it looks like a lot of these huge, giant, um, perfectly designed rocks were toppled over as if something blew them over. And we can't even tell how someone got there in the first place, but then how was this amazing, um, looks like a castle built with exquisitely laser carved design made of rock stones blown apart, which is, you know, to me, an even bigger question. It was obviously formed together in a different way at some point. Whoever had the ability and knowledge to put this together, um, they built something pretty amazing with it. And a lot of it's been taken apart, which is also very strange. So um, this one has always blown my mind. I think it's called Petra. It's just, um, yeah, Petra Jordan. They say Petra flourished more than 2,000 years ago, trading in Rome as, um, as an equal before being abandoned after earthquakes in the 4th and 6th centuries. Now visitors walk down the long, narrow canyon of the Sig to the city entrance. Dramatic as approach. Uh, so we can see that in whatever time this was built, and I'm not exactly sure I would believe, even if they said what time it was built, that people were putting an intense amount of time and energy into making something like this. It's mind-blowing compared to anything we do in modern times. We just don't do anything quite like that. And um, trying to say people did that just with hammers and chisels, well, you know, seems unbelievable to me. Anyway, um, that one has always blown my mind. But this particular, um, this is called the Baalbek Lebanon Monolithic Stone. And I've always found this one particularly exciting um, because it's one of the biggest. I think it might be the largest stone ever carved by human hands, according to some people's description and there's this area they called the trilithon trilithon and each of these stones is estimated to weigh over 750 tons so they're saying in an article i read that the construction on the massive roman temple of jupiter began roughly 27 years before the birth of jesus well most scholars agree the blocks were cut out by the Romans. There's some evidence that the Trilithon may predate their presence in the Middle East. And the stones may predate even Alexander the Great. So whenever you're reading articles, um, what I find is that there's really vastly different estimates made of how old these things are. And some of the research I've heard, for instance, the research that has come out in many in recent years um, on the Sphinx, there's been researchers showing that the weathering shows that this thing's much, much older than previous experts, so-called experts, had said. Now, I shouldn't laugh at them. I'm sure many of them put a lot of hard work into coming to the conclusions they did. And so, um, to me, it's just funny that there's not any agreement that these mysteries aren't solved, that they're still in the realm of mystery. It seems to me that if we put our minds to it, we could we could solve these mysteries. And what keeps these mysteries from being solved, I guess, is what I'm getting at. So um, I'm not sure if they're talking about this stone in the article I wrote down here, but it says, known as the stone of the pregnant woman, it weighs an estimated 1,200 tons, equivalent to three Boeing 747s. So I thought that was a good description. Three airplanes is about the same as one of these stones apparently proved too much for an Indian to move. I've heard that if you put 
cranes all around a stone of this size, you couldn't put enough cranes in a circle to even lift it, much less move it. So how did people in ancient times do that? When we know the proof is there, you know, the structures are there. So the proof is there that the feat was done. And the descriptions that people have come up with aren't fitting enough to have conclusive um, knowledge worldwide of these ancient mysteries. And these ancient mysteries exist all around the planet. So what I'm getting at is that we have this huge question. A lot of what we talk about here on the End Evil podcast is the world of the occult, things that have been hidden from us. And when you start asking questions and you don't get answers, you have to wonder why. Why are there not answers on these things? Why are people still wondering about, you know, who built these things and how? Well, I think that has a lot to do with the way the world is now. And that there have been people all through history purposefully keeping secrets. And perhaps there are people that do have knowledge that dates back through many generations. And that knowledge kind of keeps them having a power differential, knowing things that other people don't know. Perhaps some of that technology from ancient times has still been passed on through generations of people that have kept it within their family lines. Perhaps the stories of what really happened has been passed on through some of these family lines. And they use that knowledge generationally to um, keep themselves in positions of power because they know things that other people don't know. And I think that really is at the root of the problem, but I am just explaining my own thoughts and theories and questions and some of the things I wondered about. And I think what is interesting about that is before I got into the subject of freedom, before I started really considering that freedom is the most important thing that we should be talking and thinking about, I was, I was just intrigued by these um, curious things I would see, whether it was about a Bigfoot or Sasquatch or a megalithic site. And I have the type of mind that if I have a question that's not answered, I just keep wondering and wondering about it. And, it, and what I notice about modern society is that there's a tendency to avoid that type of thinking. When you can't answer a question, just look it up somewhere, find the right answer and move on. Don't, don't let yourself be stumped as if it's something bad or wrong to think about things and wonder about things. When the truth is, that type of thinking and wondering is what led me down the path of eventually conspiratorial subjects and then eventually realizing that what I really need to be thinking about, talking about was the subject of freedom and why humans, after all these generations of slavery, are still not free. Many people have the illusion that we have become free, but the truth is that in ancient times, there were people that were actually being hauled around in chains, and that was the type of slavery that was employed by oftentimes kings and whatever other kind of rulers existed. And in modern times, it's a more subtle type of slavery where we're owned with money and we're owned, our time is owned and our energy is owned. And even knowledge itself is owned by a very small minority. Now we have this unique opportunity to do research and learn about new and interesting things. And what we can do for those of us who care about truth, for those who care about freedom, that understand that evil is the destruction of freedom, is that we look for opportunities to speak with other people that we meet, other people in the public. And I found that as I look into things like, like this ball black stone in Lebanon, something like this can be kind of an in, innocent conversation starter. And you might be able to mention someone, did you know that they have, you know, a stone that's as big as three Boeing 747s laying there and no explanation for how people carved it out or moved stones like that for hundreds of miles? You know, and that might start an in interesting conversation with someone and it might stir the opportunity to discuss what slavery was back then, because that's what many people believe back then. All this was done with slaves. I honestly really question that. And I'll get a little bit more into that um, when we get to the pyramid slide. 
but I've seen some things that make me really wonder whether it was just slaves that built these ancient structures. Here's one that, you know, some people explain away simply. It's called the Iron, Pilly, uh, Iron Pillar of Delhi. And um, what's interesting about the Iron Pillar of Delhi is it's known to be uh, 6.5 tons or so, um, and it has never rusted in many years. And this portrays some kind of exceptional skills or knowledge of metallurgy to be able to create a pillar that doesn't rust. Uh, we don't really have that technology or we don't really use that technology in modern times, being able to create um, rust-free iron. Otherwise, why would we have trouble with rust, right? If we already had the solution. Uh, one explanation that's been brought forward is that somehow because of the way the metal was smelted, that there's some sort of residue and it's an after effect and it's sort of protected itself over all these years. However, um, I find it to be a pretty interesting, again, like some of the other fantastic things we see around the world, sort of just a testament to people of ancient times that we think of as having less knowledge than we have now, where they obviously had quite sophisticated knowledge and in some cases knew how to do things that modern people don't even have a clue how to do. So there's this big question left. How come in ancient history, at the origins of mankind, there were temples, structures built that, that still exist today? When the story we learn in school and the story that's still kind of touted in mainstream is that we evolved from apes. So if we evolved from apes, there would be this slow progression throughout time of humans getting a little smarter and starting to figure out how to make a wheel, you know, and then once they got the wheel, then, you know, they worked their way up through the years. Yet what we see is in ancient history, there were things built before a time that we even completely have any stories about or, you know, the stories are mixed in different religions and different books, but we're not exactly sure which ones are true and which ones are made up. But there's this evidence of things that were built that show high technology, high metallurgy skills, um, like laser cutting rocks, moving immense weights that we still can't move today. And assembling these things like um, on, on Easter Island, for instance, in a way that doesn't necessarily make any sense to us. Why would you put that much time and effort just to line up all these giant heads and bodies made of stone looking in the same direction or um, create these the stones in Stonehenge, for instance, with alignment that has to do with things that are going on in the stars? Why would those people take that much time and energy to do those things? Uh, immense amount of effort. Well, it, it leads us back to some of the things that Dom and I talked about the last couple weeks. And what I talked about in the very beginning of this episode was my um, one of the books I shared as that I've been looking at recently is a book by Zachariah Sitchin. And in his book, The Twelfth Planet, Zachariah Sitchin goes through some of these mysteries and unexplained things on earth. And he explains it from the point of view of what he deciphered from the leftover um, things he found on stones that were written on the stones and translated from the Sumerian tablets and telling this story about these um, Nibiru, who are these people from the planet Nibiru who came here that, and, and perhaps shared this high technology to this planet and perhaps used gene technology and, and perhaps changed, created humans as a slave race to help them do their bidding. And that was the story that Zachariah Sitchin stole, um, told from his translation of the Sumerian story. Now, whether that is the correct story or not, we'll never know. But what I find interesting thing about it is it does give an explanation for where all of a sudden there was this flourishing in history of creating all these amazing, huge, unexplained temples around the world. And then all of a sudden, whatever cultures and 
knowledge that people had seemed to fade off for a while. And then they, these things were rediscovered, kind of grown over, like we see Machu Picchu, where, you know, the jungle's grown over it and it's a modern tourist thing. Obviously, at some time in history, this was a, this place was hopping. There was things going on. So what happened? You know, it, it, again, it leaves these big questions. What happened? And then I think, personally, the bigger question is, why did these things happen? Why did these things change? Um, the next slide I'm going to share with you is something that was kind of new to me. And I don't necessarily think this is evidence of alien technology. However, it's very curious. This is called the Lysurgis Cup. And it's a glass chalice made with what's called dichroic glass, I believe. And it, it apparently changes colors depending on the light passing through it. So what's really interesting about that is they claim now that, that this was made with nanotechnology. So the cup shows a picture of Emperor, Emperor Licinius being defeated by Constantine um, 300 AD. So that does show that it probably came from that period of time in history. And but what's interesting is how did people in that period of time in history um, know about nanotechnology? Apparently, when in 1990, researchers in England scrutinized broken fragments under a microscope and discovered that the Roman artisans were nanotechnology pioneers. They impregnated the glass with particles of silver and gold, ground down until they were small as 50 nanometers in diameter less than one thousandth the size of a grain of table salt. So the exact mixture of the precious metals suggests that the Romans knew what they were doing. An amazing feat, says one of the researchers. So I look at this as just being, again, something inspirational and amazing in terms of a piece of art. And also at a time in history, we're looking at what, um, 300, AD, you know, um, that's thousand, you know, that's a couple thousand years ago, at least, right? We're looking at a long, long time ago, where apparently people are figuring out something that's on the level of nanotechnology, which is something for us, you know, just developed in the last 50 years or so at the most. And yet we see it in this cup. And that's pretty amazing. So I think it what it does is it's it shows that we should give more credit to people in history and instead of thinking them as um less than us that they didn't have knowledge and that they weren't smart and recognize that people of modern times have a lot of um how should i say hubris we tend to think that we're so much better than other people and places and times in history that we're you know, many um, people actually think here in America that because this is America, that we're free, that this is a free country. And yet we're lacking freedom on many levels. And we're lacking knowledge on many levels because of the fact that so many of us now have very specific tasks we do for work. Many of us don't know simple things that people probably would have known um, historically, how to grow their own food or how to make their own tools. And so there's a lot of knowledge that's been lost. And there's a lot of knowledge that the average person today just doesn't have. So um, I think we can be inspired by these things from history. In many ways, we can be inspired one to be curious and ask more questions and do more research into who these people were and how they did these things. Two, we can be inspired to do more amazing things and work together as a race in modern times. And three, we can begin to draw some connections as to why we're in the situation that we're in. And I think that's really the most important part of what I'm calling the conspiracy of all conspiracies, is how did humans become so easily manipulated? How did humans come become stuck in a place where we're not able to recognize the importance of freedom in the modern day? and recognize what freedom really means. There are a lot of hints in these ancient structures and these 
these um, sites that show that there was um, amazing amount of teaming teamwork going on. And that tells me that, you know, some people like to believe all these things were just done because there were rulers who had slaves and they just told them do this, you know, and they just made thousands of people do their bidding. However, it occurs to me that even if that were the case, that also, again, highlights the problem of people being um, so submissive that they would that they would all thousands and thousands of people work together and do something just because one person was telling to them to do it. However, I think I tend to think that some of these things in history were, were not the stories we've been told and we don't have enough answers, you know, to really know for sure. And that's part of the problem that we haven't worked together to really get to the bottom of these things. And I think we could, I think truth is discoverable. Here's an image that shows sort of what I was talking about before, that there's this alignment. Um, in China, there's pyramids that have alignment to the stars. In Mexico, there's pyramids that have the same alignment to the stars. In Egypt, there's pyramids that have the same alignment to the stars. And here we show the Orion's belt, which shows that same alignment. So all over the earth, in different places, in ancient history, people were doing incredibly amazing feats with technology that we don't completely understand and with knowledge of alignment of the stars and being able to do these things proportionally with some very complicated mathematics. Pretty surprising things that were pulled off and amazing. I wish I could travel around the world and see all these things myself, but unluckily, uh, limited budget, we'll, we'll just have to do what we can on the internet. So I made a little search on the internet and I was going through, you know, I was reading the book that was um, the children's book, which was Technology of the Gods. And he was talking about vitrified stone. That was something that really got my attention. So I started looking at some of the different places that show vitrified stone. And there are a lot in Scotland. One is called Dun Deerdale, which was supposedly built around 500 BC. Celtic Fort and a Pictish Citadel, it says. But there's at least 60 others in Scotland. Here's a picture, a close-up of some melted rock and then some glazed, you know, sort of a cutoff of some glazed stone. And you see here a map of all these places all over Scotland that where we found um, vitrified forts, basically. Um, people have done experiments. I did a little bit of reading on this on some of these forts around the world to try to answer and understand how they got melted. And um, apparently there have been some experiments that I read about where they were able to melt rock to some extent. However, the extent of which it was done and up the walls of these uh, places is, you know, they just, they, they can only explain part of it. They can't, they can't explain the whole thing is what it, what it comes down to. Um, so back to the pyramids in Egypt, the pyramids in Egypt, um, to me, this is sort of a exceptional topic because the, the people themselves, the Egyptians have some very, um, different cultural uniqueness than when we look at a lot of their times in history. They're, the Egyptians seem to have a very high technology also and a uh, very high quality of living from what you can tell, what we can tell. And this um, is one of the most vivid examples of also, like I showed before, the alignment to the stars, but just an ancient, ancient culture that had an incredible amount of knowledge. Where did all this knowledge come from and how did it just sort of show up on this planet all at once? Um, seemed to really blossom for a while where people were doing all these amazing things and then just disappeared um, in a blink of an eye. And then we were back to fighting wars and silly human battles and um, stupid stuff again. But it does seem like there were periods of time in history where there was an amazing organized effort to um, do something literally monumental.
Uh, one of the ones that I've always kind of saving for last here, and it's probably the hardest for me to pronounce, Saksaihuman, Saksaihuman, I think. Um, when you started looking into the molten rocks, that's where it really gets interesting in this one because these, these are some of the most enormous stones that can be found as you can see in this next picture here a man standing in front of it and they fit together so tight you can't put a piece of paper between the rocks and um there seems to be glaze glazing on these rocks as if they were perhaps melted and this is similar why i brought up all the different forts in scotland where they show vitrified stones we have evidence of vitrification also at this site which is one of the most um amazing you know sites i would love to go visit myself but i got i got off on a little tangent then i was asking the internet i'm like okay how hot is a campfire <laughs> how hot can we really get a fire you know and i guess well according to these websites they all agreed that Realistically, you should be able to get a fire um, up to about a thousand degrees and a thousand degrees could, in theory, melt some rocks. Um, one website said the difficulty with many of the curious ancient vitrified examples is that they are found on objects so large that they cannot be placed in a furnace. The vitrification process itself is quite a mystery. A team of chemists on Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World subjected rock samples from 11 forts to rigorous chemical analysis. They concluded that the temperatures needed to produce the vitrification were up to 1,100 degrees Celsius. Simply burning the walls with wood interlaced with stone could not achieve such temperatures. So recent experiments along these lines have had no success at all. I did come across something um, I think that was more recent than that article that said they have had some um, success. But um, another interesting place they have is the Libyan desert where you find Libyan glass that it's, I, I think it's just that it's extremely dense silica and it's really rare to find. And there's scientists have always had a hard time understanding how Libyan glass was formed. And one guess, you know, they looked at um, an explosion, like a bomb explosion the Chelyabinsk airburst deposited 0.5 megatons of energy into the sky, and that did not cause melting or shock damage. So they were, you know, one of the theories is that this Libyan glass has been created by an uh, explosion in ancient history. And that does sort of align with Zachariah Sitchin's stories that there was wars between these gods from another planet, Nibiru, and the Nephilim had these type of powerful weapons on their ships that could do um, like what we describe as a nuclear blast or an atomic blast. And um, so that's one explanation for how Libyan glass formed. Although of course, if you start looking this up on different websites, there's a lot of disagreement and some people say that can't be the case because that's a conspiracy theory. Anyway, the airburst idea rose from modeling atmospheric nuclear explosions. Um, like a nuclear bomb, a large airburst deposits energy into the atmosphere that can melt stone. Um, so here's a little more from the other article I found about all the examples of the vitrified rock in Scotland. There's just a lot of places where they see this glazed area on the rocks. And, um, you know, there's some testing been done and there's no simple answers on this stuff, of course. And here's a more couple pages where they've, They've done case studies in Peru that shows this vitrified melted rock with these, um, you know, and sometimes they're different on one side than the other. And that shows that obviously some um, treatment was done to one side of the rocks that wasn't done to the other. And... Um, I'm not going to read all this. It's too much words. <laughs> anyway, so here's a little bit more about that Libyan glass. They say it was formed 29 million years ago. Pure silica. That's what they said. 
temperatures above 1600 forms. So that would be 1600 degrees would be way hotter than, than what we could do by creating a fire. That's for sure. So there's still not a, a good explanation on the Libyan desert glass. And that was something I learned about in the technology of the gods book. Um, I was trying to find out how hard is it to melt a rock? How hot does it have to get? And this guy seemed to be a popular answer. He says it really depends on the rock type. And so um, some rocks will melt around 600 degrees and some melt around 1,000 degrees. Anyway, one thing we can say for sure, it would not be easy at all to melt rocks. It would be extremely difficult. And it would be... Um, a, quite an effort to melt rocks in such a way to do something like this that we see in Inca and Peru. Um, the Inca vitrified stone really is no explanation for how people could do that. So, um, oh, I forgot all about keeping an eye on my comments today, and I have this awesome ability to look on comments. So let me just get through my last couple slides here and then um, I'll see what people have been saying through the show. Thanks for those of you who've been hanging out and checking out the show. really appreciate it. It's, um, it's a lot more fun when people are watching. <laughs> so this um, is one of the most interesting things that has been found. It's called the Antikythe, I've never pronounced it right, Antikythe mechanism, ancient Greek device that was used probably to track the movement of the sun, the moon, and the planets. Um, it was found by sponge divers, and um, we still don't know exactly what this device was used for, but we do know that it was incredible that it was built in the time it was built when, you know, as far as, like I said, the typical version of what people should have known during that period of time, there's no way that anyone would have had that type of knowledge to build something quite like that. Here's a picture of some of the sponge divers that found the Antikythe device that I can't pronounce. Antikythe, Antikythe mechanism. And apparently they were actually commissioned to uh, do the diving and pull it up. They, rather than keeping it selfishly, they reported it and brought in scientists in the community of so-called officials and, um, Here's some pictures of x-rays that were done that show all the little teeth mechanisms. And this was, you know, pulled out of the ocean. And it wasn't until years later where people really started putting it together, just how amazing what had been found was. It just looked like a clump of coal at first. But, you know, they started putting it through x-rays and counting the teeth and realizing that this is this, this absolutely amazing, incredible device that was like an ancient computer. And they still don't really have a proper explanation for how that was done. So let's see, did I have any more information on that one? I guess that's good enough for now. Oh, um, 2000 years underwater is the prediction of how long that was there. And when they blew up even smaller, I'm guessing electron microscope, you find that there's all this writing on the, um, on the device. So that makes it even more out of place and a bigger question in history as to how the heck, you know, people did that. This guy was interesting. I watched this um, guy talking all about it and he shows all these little details that they figured out about how amazing this device is. Look at how they've reconstructed, you know, it's measuring the movement of the earth and all these gears represent um, it's just absolutely amazing. This globe on which were delineated the motions of the sun and the moon and those of the five stars, which were called wanderers. This is, um, they brought in quotes from Archimedes. Some people have considered that possibly Archimedes built this device or was involved in it. Um, you know, they're just, I don't think they have a full answer, but amazing, astounding and interesting. And I find it kind of fun to look at things like this and to wonder where did we come from? How did we wind up in the shape we're at? You know, how did we go from having this amazing um, Egyptian culture with these pyramids of power, who knows what they did? Some people have guessed that 
they acted as energy transformers or healing centers or um, communication vices, devices to other planets. Who knows? But they're still fantastic and still amazing. And there's a lot to think about and wonder about. And it's a good topic to get people thinking and wondering. So I think if we can, I think it's good to challenge people we run into and we talk with on a day-to-day basis and think of ways, interesting ways to bring up different topics. Because if you just keep telling people that the virus isn't real, they they just get mad at you. (laughs) So um, yeah, thanks for tuning in. I'm going to kind of go through some of the comments because I wasn't watching before. I'm not used to having this. Hey, if Rob and Jen showed up, that's good, my friends. And um, someone's appreciating the stream. Thank you. Agorapoco loves Chris. Well, Chris loves Agorapoco too. All right. Ancient technology. Let's see. See what Alexander had to say. If we evolve from apes, then we must be turning back towards apes. Yeah, right? <laughs> Ancient structural evidence shows that we were highly sophisticated beings that back then, right? And, you know, one thing I find interesting is if we think of all the stories in history of wars and rulers and people killing each other, humanity has somehow survived it all. So there must have always been this thread of some of us humans that were behaving good enough and not killing each other well enough for us to have survived this long so it's possible folks we can do better um good reminder it may not have been forced labor as the school books say probably just vigorous collectivism perhaps something deeply inspired you know and perhaps there was a common enemy is another thing i've occurred to me perhaps that people work together in a way that we haven't done you know, for all these years because they weren't busy fighting each other and people were actually working together. That's another possibility. You know, we don't really know for sure, but um, I think it's great to be asking these questions. And I think it's great that I'm not the only one wondering and asking these questions. But this week, I think I'm going to conclude my discussion and looking into the conspiracy of all conspiracies of ancient origins and where do we come from? For the time being and um i think what i'd like to do is get back into it when i can find someone with more expertise than myself and bring them in for an interview i've come across some really great podcasts so i'll have to seek out some of those people but these these few episodes were fun i wanted to chat with dom about the subject and we did a good bit of chatting on that and i'll have those posted to endevil.life in the next few weeks my chats with dom but you can find them on facebook or twitch or um where else twitter i'm on twitter too anyway thanks so much for coming folks and thanks for making some comments friends appreciate it and i'm gonna go ahead and move on to the end of the show check out endevil.life if you haven't yet I'm always a little slow on keeping it updated, but all my work will eventually get there. And and Evil will be on next week, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. We're going to try to keep it coming. If you want to donate to End Evil, go to endevil.life, and you can get yourself an End Evil shirt, or you can get... Um, make a little donation and that'd be much appreciated even a dollar or whatever every little bit helps um it takes a lot of work to put these things together and to keep a show coming every week so i appreciate any encouragement you know feel free to reach out contact me if you like what i'm making if you got ideas of how we can make it better and um i always appreciate that too thanks so much for coming folks have a good one Hello, this is Chris Jansen. Welcome to the End Evil Podcast. Uh, It was a crazy year, 2020. I think everybody kind of was losing their mind one way or another. Um, But if you're listening to this, you made it through. They're making mistakes and people are starting to awake. 
There is a science of human freedom. It's also a spiritual journey. Uh, a person under hypnosis will start to know, see that there's something wrong. Something is wrong. Uh, it's great that you know what you've come to know, but until uh, there's an outlet for that information and you start creating and putting your creations out into the world to teach other people so that they can become as knowledgeable as you. Um, life. What is encouraging life is good. That which takes away from life and growth and creativity is not good.